Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleiman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. The U.S. coal industry has declined dramatically over the past decade, with output from the nation's coal mines falling 35% from their peak. Today, coal-fired power plants generate just over a quarter of the nation's electricity and have been surpassed by natural gas power plants as the top source for electric power generation. A variety of narratives have been put forth to explain coal's decline. None has been more politically charged than the war on coal narrative, advanced by the Trump administration, that places blame on a set of Obama-era federal policies to reduce the environmental impact of coal. On today's podcast, we'll discuss new research that takes a close look at the impact of federal environmental regulation on the coal industry. The research examines several years of stock market data to gauge the reaction of investors to regulatory announcements. Today's guests are the authors of the research. Kerry Colonisi is director of the Penn Program on Regulation at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Dan Walters is an assistant professor of law at Penn State University, whose work focuses on energy and environmental law. Previously, Dan was a regulation fellow at the Penn Program on Regulation. Their working paper, titled Wither the Regulatory War on Coal, Scapegoats, Saviors, and Stock Market Reactions, is available on the Climate Center's website. Carrie and Dan, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Great to be here. So, Carrie, uh, let's start with you. What is the so-called war on coal, and where did the term come from? Well, it is a term that really entered the uh, political lexicon most dramatically during the Obama administration. As you said, the coal industry, uh, well, it's actually been on decline for decades, even uh, starting in the 1990s. Uh, you, you had a, an industry that had an employment levels probably four times what it has today. But due to technology changes and other changes over the years, you've seen some, some dramatic changes. But the most dramatic occurred uh, during the Obama administration, that that 35 percent or so decline in in coal as the uh, source of energy in the United States and coal as as, a, as production levels, that really dropped off starting in 2008. And um, folks uh, on the political right uh, charged that that decline was associated with the Obama-era policies. Now, starting uh, around um, 2011, uh, the Obama administration began to put a series of major regulations, three of them in particular, on the electricity industry and on utilities that that burn coal that has ha, would have an impact on them. And uh, you saw at that time uh, House Speaker John Boehner, uh, Senate uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, uh, using this rhetoric of a war on coal. And then it was picked up most dramatically, uh, I think, uh, by, uh, by Donald Trump in the uh, electoral campaign leading to, uh, to his election in 2016. What are the specific policies that comprise the war on coal? Right. As I said, there, there are major regulations that were imposed on utility companies, the, the power generation uh, facilities that burn coal would face uh, additional costs associated with environmental regulations. And specifically, we're talking about uh, in 2011, uh, EPA's cross-state air pollution rule, which regulated uh, emissions 
as it as the name of the rule <laughs> implies, uh, that that travel in interstate uh, air transmission. The uh, second rule uh, that's uh, most widely associated with this war on coal rhetoric is the mercury and air toxic standard, uh, sometimes called the MATS rule, uh, adopted in 2012. And then probably the granddaddy, if you will, of them all is uh, the clean power plan. Uh, adopted in 2015. This is the uh, signature regulation uh, underlying the Obama administration's climate uh, change policy strategy. Uh, It never went into effect, uh, which is, I think, an important thing to note because of of litigation. But these three regulations, uh, the argument goes, uh, imposed additional environmental costs and compliance costs on utility companies that burn coal. And for that reason, may well make it more attractive for these utilities either to go out of business or to switch to natural gas or for whatever reason to just burn less coal. And that's bad for the coal industry. That's the war on coal. And we'll talk more about the details in just a moment and the the specific factors. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the decline in coal is pretty dramatic between 2008 and 2016. Coal production declined by over a third in this country, so very significant decline. Uh, Dan, let's go on to you for a moment here. You know, while some, such as the Trump administration, have focused blame on the war on coal, and, and some academic research that you mentioned in the report has concluded uh, that environmental regulations pose a quote existential threat to the coal industry. Um, research also points out that there are other factors responsible for falling coal demand, notably the development of shale gas. What are the range of factors that have, in fact, influenced the market for coal? Yeah, well, there are a host of, of reasons uh, besides environmental regulations, uh, as, you, as you say. Um, and, of course, the biggest one you just mentioned is the, the rapid rise of shale gas as a competitor uh, to coal uh, over this period. Um, this is a period when uh, the price of natural gas is precipitously falling, uh, making it really more and more enticing uh, for uh, electric utilities to shift their generation portfolios uh, towards uh, natural gas uh, and also to make some tough decisions to retire uh, existing coal plants. You know, Dan, also there's a, a couple of reports from 2017, one from Harvard and one Columbia, that overwhelmingly put the responsibility for the decline uh, in coal demand on natural gas. Um, what can you say about those? So the papers you're talking about uh, are really, as far as I know, the only two uh, serious papers to look at uh, this question of uh, what is contributing to uh, the decline of coal. Uh, the Columbia paper that you mentioned out of the Columbia Center on Global Energy Policy looks at uh, the factors contributing to coal's decline and finds that natural gas is about 50% uh, of the decline. And the Harvard paper that you mentioned finds that it's actually quite a bit more than that, uh, in the range of 90% of the total observed decline in coal production is due to natural gas. So what uh, those studies showed is what the direct effects might be on the production of coal, the demand for coal from these regulatory events or from changes in the competitiveness of the natural gas industry. Uh, There are still folks out there in the scholarly community, some law professors in particular, who 
claim that these regulations really amounted to an existential threat. This is why we went ahead with this uh, research that we did, which would say, okay, if this is an existential threat, if it is a war on coal per se, then let's look at what we can discern from the behavior of those people who have real skin in the game with this industry, not just uh, doing really good, you know, independent academic research on the changes in production levels or demand for coal, but just what does the stock market actually have to tell us about what investors thought about this claimed narrative of a regulatory war on coal? Should we really have people out there in the academic literature writing about regulation amounting to an existential threat to the coal industry? Um, let's let's turn to those people who really um, who really have it in their own interest to find out the investors with skin in the game. Exactly. So so why is the war on coal narrative persisting with all this data out there that shows other factors such as natural gas being the real drivers? Well, I should say also, by the way, that um, when we looked at investor expectations, one of the first things we looked at is a high correlation between the share prices in the coal industry and natural gas wholesale prices. <laughs> so uh, that sort of leads us to think that maybe there's some things uh, going on here really uh, consistent with the, the, the natural gas competition story. But um, so why does this, this narrative persist? Well, I mean, I think uh, there's two phenomena that we talk about in our paper. One is what we call regulatory scapegoating. Uh, I think it's uh, in the strategic interest of managers of companies, particularly companies that are in decline, to put the blame on someone else uh, or something else. And regulation is a natural target for that kind of scapegoating. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's where people often turn whenever we see an economic downturn. Well, we must have too much regulation. Uh, it must be uh, regulation killing jobs uh, and, and killing the industry. So that's one source of this persistent uh, narrative against regulation. And the second is I think that politicians have it in their interest to act as saviors to come along and say, well, we can change regulation. Uh, we're the ones that can save you. In fact, Donald Trump, I think, said something once that, you know, he's uh, the coal industry's last chance. Um, and of course, he said to the whole nation in the Republican convention that I alone uh, can uh, can save you. Uh, and that's the that's the, the the subtitle of our paper about scapegoats and and saviors. We're trying to kind of break through what seemed to us to be fairly obvious strategic interests that folks both in industry and their allies in the political sphere have to overstate the effects of regulation, particularly in a dying industry. Uh, if I can just jump in, jump in really quickly uh, and add a, a third uh, potential explanation that we discuss briefly in the paper, beyond scapegoating and, and uh, acting as savior, uh, it seems like as well there's a potential long-term political strategy for the industry in sort of expanding uh, what some people might call the Overton window. Um, so by criticizing uh, regulation of the industry uh, and uh, suggesting that there is a larger uh, war on coal and an existential threat to the industry, 
uh, other uh, political options beyond just deregulation become political possibilities. And what um, we've seen so, in the Trump administration is some of those other other options being considered to an extent that is almost unimaginable in any other administration, right, Dan? So subsidies, for instance, you know, it, it seems like a bailout for the for the industry has at times uh, come up on the agenda for the Trump administration. And it's hard to imagine that that would have ever been on the table if not for the hard work that folks in the industry and, and politicians who support them did to sort of suggest that uh, this industry was under existential threat. Let's uh, take a step back now and look at the research itself. So this gets pretty technical, but uh, Dan, can you tell us about the methods that you and Carrie used to understand the extent to which uh, these regulatory announcements related to the coal industry actually impacted uh, investors uh, who, who, who were invested in those industries? Yeah, so we used two uh, widely used methodologies, uh, an event study methodology and then difference and differences analysis uh, to, to explore uh, the uh, impacts of various events uh, related to the supposed war on coal on stocks, uh, publicly traded coal companies. So basically, our method involves looking at hard financial data, you know, the publicly traded coal stocks' uh, daily returns over a period of time, uh, both before and after uh, important regulatory announcements, uh, and then measuring how those uh, events, those announcements, primarily, primarily those related to the uh, cross-state air pollution rule and the mercury air toxic standard, and the Clean Power Plan, as Kerry mentioned, uh, changed the subsequent performance of those uh, publicly traded stocks. So just to get a little bit more granular with it, uh, the event study methodology is not simply uh, a comparison of before and after. Uh, the idea uh, with this method is to try to create an uh, estimate of the baseline of normal performance uh, for uh, uh, the stocks we're looking at before the event, and then to extrapolate uh, those uh, 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 normal uh, performance expectations after the event, and then to compare what we actually observe uh, on those days after the event to what we would have expected, all things considered. Um, so if we do that, we sort of get a measure of the difference between uh, predicted and observed that we can call abnormal returns. And then from there, a simple analysis of whether that uh, rises to the level of statistical significance. Um, and because we're only looking at a short window of time after the event, we're able to sort of attribute the abnormal return to the introduction of new information in that regulatory announcement. That's sort of the, the basic idea of an event study is to control for a lot of other factors by looking only at that narrow window of time after these events occur. Uh, and, and narrow in, in a one-day, uh, two-day, or three-day uh, window. So you're looking for a real jump there following an announcement. Right? Immediately, really following the announcement, next-day effect. And I think there was a, 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 another methodology that you're using kind of to back this up. What was that? So that's a, a variation on a difference in differences approach. Um, and difference in differences is widely used uh, in all kinds of literatures to... Um, uh, explore uh, the impact of various policy interventions. And the basic idea here, um, somewhat related to the event study method that we use, is to compare the post-event outcomes for one group of firms uh, that's affected by the event 
with the post-event outcomes of a separate set of firms that wasn't affected. And by figuring out what the difference is between these two groups after the event, we get a kind of estimate of the impact of the event. Um, so here, uh, we use uh, difference in differences to study coal firms as the group that was ostensibly affected by these environmental regulatory events, and then to compare the uh, stock returns for those firms to those of natural gas firms. And there are really two reasons for, for doing this. One is that it's sort of a uh, uh, robustness check on the event study uh, methodology that we use. It's you know, slightly different. We're able to actually uh, control for a lot of factors that generally affect uh, the energy industry because uh, in a lot of ways, coal stocks are highly correlated with natural gas stocks. Um, so uh, by comparing the two, we sort of can uh, control for those uh, industry-wide uh, factors um, and focus on just the impact on coal. Um, and then the other thing is, in some de- uh, to some degree, uh, natural gas firms are in direct competition with coal firms. So comparing them uh, uh, via this difference in differences analysis makes it a little bit more likely that we'll find uh, any impact on coal stocks that might be lurking in the data. Uh, for instance, it might be that coal stocks didn't respond to the event but that they do lose relative ground uh, to uh, uh, the natural gas stocks. In other words, the, the regulatory events further affected competitiveness in the fight between those industries. So what did you find? Did the results show the uh, – did it support the narrative of the war on coal that you get a regulation and you get a negative impact on the coal companies? Yeah, well, so we did find some things and then we didn't find other things. So maybe it's best to start with what we didn't find. We didn't find uh, any consistent evidence that would support our expectations about the impacts of events uh, related to these three uh, critical rules that we've been discussing, the cross-state air pollution rule, the MAPS, uh, and the Clean Power Plan. So, in fact, uh, the findings were even uh, more counterintuitive uh, than that in some instances. For instance, uh, with the MAPS, we found evidence that's arguably consistent with coal stocks being positively affected, not negatively affected, positively affected by the announcement of the proposed rule. And then a fairly negative reaction to the Supreme Court's ultimate invalidation uh, of the standard in Michigan versus EPA. Um, we also didn't find any evidence that coal stocks were affected at all by the Supreme Court's stay of the Clean Power Plan. Which was a surprise. And is a huge surprise. This is arguably the most useful event in the paper uh, for testing claims about the war on coal because, uh, one, it was a very important part of the Obama uh, climate policy and strategy, uh, and two, it, it was a complete shock. Uh, this was completely unprecedented for the Supreme Court to intervene uh, in this manner in the regulatory process, uh, and it caught just about everybody off guard. Um, so the surprise factor is really strong here, which uh, lends a lot of support to the event study methodology. Uh, yet our data suggests that most coal firms uh, saw no statistically significant change in stock performance uh, after the stay. Uh, and indeed, one firm stock, uh, Peabody, uh, the biggest uh, coal uh, firm by far, uh, did quite poorly uh, after the decision was announced, uh, when we would certainly expect the industry to be celebrating uh, the Supreme Court stay. Wither the war on coal. <laughs> That's uh, you know, and I, w- I should should say that we um, we looked f- really hard 
to find something here. Uh, I think, you know, when you count it up, we have about 27 event window combinations just with the, the, the major war on coal regulations and the various events, the proposed rule announcements, the final rule announcements, uh, litigation events. Uh, and, you know, we're just not finding anything in the vast majority of these. And as Dan has indicated, sometimes we're finding things that are uh, quite inconsistent with it. So uh, we've got this political rhetoric out there that's really strong and strident and should lead to expectations uh, when you look at uh, the, the market that uh, are, would be completely different than what we found. Well, I, I did want to say uh, uh, that we did find some uh, events had impacts on coal stocks. Um, so to round out the, the rest of uh, the response to your question, uh, we did find um, that there were um, systemic effects of these uh, uh, announcements uh, uh, related to bankruptcies um, uh, in the coal sector. So it, it was very clear that when uh, Arch uh, Coal, for instance, uh, declared bankruptcy, the, the rest of the coal market did react quite strongly. So um, uh, this is sort of a robustness check on um, uh, on, on the method uh, in the sense that, you know, it's not the methodology. We're not uh, uh, failing to observe any kind of reaction uh, with these coal stocks. Um, it's just that generally uh, the kinds of events um, that do generate generate a reaction are not the uh, canonical uh, war on coal regulations. And I should say that there even are some effects we found with regulations, uh, but not these regulatory war on coal regulations that we talked about before the cross-state air pollution rule, the mercury standards, and the clean power plan. Uh, we did find more of an effect uh, when uh, the federal government adopted regulations directly affecting the actual operation of coal mining. So with respect to uh, regulations designed to protect water quality from the extraction of mine itself, there we do see uh, some uh, stock market reaction, which makes it all the more surprising that when it came to these canonical war on coal regulations, we're just not finding it. Uh, I should also say we looked at some other events, for example, uh, that, 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 that certainly have some policy implications. The Paris Agreement, we do find the stock market reacted uh, negatively to news of the signing of the Paris now that's Agreement. That's a global agreement, that's a not global a national agreement. agreement. Right. Now, interestingly enough, though, uh, when um, President Trump announced that the U.S. would be withdrawing from the Paris Accord, we don't find any statistical significance in, in the market response to that, even though, by the way, that was, if anybody recalls having lived through that, a surprise event. One knew that there was going to be an announcement from the White House, but really up until that very day, it was unclear which way Trump was going to go and what he was going to actually say about the Paris Agreement. Uh, and you know, I think there are ways that we think these results uh, can be explained, uh, or at least we have an explanation that's consistent with 
those uh, findings where we do see statistical significant differences in the stock market reaction and those where we don't. Uh, and that's what I like to call sort of a second bullet theory. Uh, you've got an industry, the coal industry, that's already been mortally wounded by this competitor called natural gas. It's uh, already, we've seen this happening well before these regulations were even put in place. Uh, and we've got these other studies that show that natural gas competition really explains a lot of the decline in the coal production in the U.S. Uh, but uh, so we, we've got that. Regulation comes along and inflicts a second wound, maybe a second bullet. But I think the evidence is pretty clear that this second bullet is probably more of a graze, right? It's not the principal source of blood loss <laughs> to the coal industry. But it, it, it's, it's the this, this second wound. And at that point, uh, it really doesn't matter. So the, the, the competition from the natural gas industry is really overwhelming the domestic demand for coal. Now, what about the negative reaction to the signing of the Paris Agreement? That's a signal about what the prospects going forward might be for exports. Mm -hmm. And around that time, uh, a lot of industry insiders were thinking that that was the salvation. So we were no longer going to see the coal industry being able to compete with natural gas. And by the way, with renewables, which are also coming along around this point in time, and the costs are, are, are starting to come down in renewables. So the long-term picture is not good domestically for the coal industry. Their salvation would be these export markets. But then comes along the Paris Agreement, and that's a signal that they shouldn't count on those export markets. Let, let me go back to one issue for just a moment mm -hmm. that I want to bring up. So when we're looking at some of these, uh, for example, the three prime regulatory issues uh, that comprise mm -hmm. the war on coal, MATS, Casper, and the Clean Power Plan, none of those were unexpected, right? They'd been in works for a while. The market knew of them. Is there a possibility that when you're not seeing a significant change in response to the actual finalization of some of these rules, that that's because, not because the market doesn't care, but because the market has already baked all that in because it's been talked about way ahead of time. Right. We discussed that in the paper. And it's certainly something we've thought about and are, are very cautious about. However, um, first of all, as we've already indicated here, we do find that for other regulatory events where that same baked-in phenomenon could be said to apply, there is something about the signing of the final rule. It's now certain. Uh, and that signing of the final rule occurs at the same time the full final rule is released to the public. And now the market has full information exactly of what uh, is, is going to happen. Uh, so uh, this baked-in effect it, uh, is is always a worry, but it's also something that is not a worry in a way with event studies. I mean, uh, we we look in the paper at the effect of presidential elections on the stock prices of coal companies. Well, everybody knows an election is coming. Why isn't that baked in? Uh, but 
uh, and you and you know one person or the other is going to win. It's you know you you you, you but yet you do see a, an effect uh, with that. You see that more broadly, presidential elections have effects on the overall stock market, generally speaking. Um, all sorts of events where this could be baked in. The information that comes with the event itself, its certainty, and new information associated with it is what we're looking at. So that's uh, that's one uh, one reason why we have some confidence uh, in you know in, in this methodology. The second to note here is that we have events that we've been talking about that were complete total surprises. Arguably, Trump's announcement of the withdrawal from the Paris Agreement, but certainly uh, the Supreme Court's decision to grant a stay of the Clean Power Plan, even though the D.C. Circuit denied that stay. That decision by the Supreme Court to halt a regulation and to uh, you know, hold in abeyance its legal effect pending litigation had never, ever happened before lawyers would routinely file these petitions asking the Supreme Court. That's sort of their best practice. You have, you know, you have to ask, but they're always denied. This was the very first time uh, in history that the Supreme Court uh, granted such a stay. So that really was a true, complete bolt out of the blue, and one which signaled clearly that the Supreme Court had problems with the Clean Power Plan. And yet, uh, nothing. And, and I would say a third thing to keep in mind here is that we also have introduced this differences and differences analysis, which by comparing the coal industry, the natural gas industry, we should be more likely to see a spread uh, between these uh, two industries and their, and their stock values, but we don't. So, Dan, let's suppose that Trump succeeds in making the regulatory changes he's been pushing related to the coal industry. Would those changes, would those rollbacks of Obama-era regulations at this point actually have a practical impact? Yeah, so I think we can kind of tell uh, a little bit about uh, this question uh, just by looking at the the withdrawal uh, from the Paris Accord. Um, you know, here we have a, a, a already... Uh, basically completed uh, uh, rollback of uh, Obama-era policy. Um, and it is not clear at all that there was any uh, a discernible impact on, uh, on the industry. Uh, and I think that's just generally likely to be true um, if uh, it's the case that the imposition of uh, regulatory uh, policies doesn't lead to um, uh, any uh, market reaction. Uh, then it doesn't seem uh, likely that uh, simply rolling back those deregulate or those regulatory policies with deregulation uh, would lead to uh, any kind of market gain. Um, so it seems unlikely that, it, that it's the Trump administration's um, uh, overall uh, approach is simply to deregulate, to undo uh, what uh, the Obama administration attempted to do. Um, it doesn't seem likely that that's going to really pay off for the industry. Now that said. As I talked about earlier with the Overton window, you know, it is perfectly possible that if uh, proposals keep getting floated to subsidize the industry, to bail out the industry, that that could have more of an impact. Um, our uh, analysis really can't speak to that because um, this is 
sort of unprecedented. On this point, let me add that the big achievement, if you will, so far from the Trump administration has been to announce a repeal of the Clean Power Plan. But that, by definition, really can't have had any effect on the coal industry because the Clean Power Plan never took effect because of that Supreme Court stay. So it wasn't as if the Clean Power Plan ever was burdening the coal industry and now that burden has been lifted. Uh, It is just taking away permanently something that had been temporarily halted. And I should say that if you look at what's happened to the coal industry during the Trump administration, production has continued to decline by some reports at a higher rate even than previously. There have been at least eight coal companies that have declared bankruptcy. Uh, The September 2019 jobs report that was put out by the Labor Department showed that in August, uh, employment in the mining sector broadly uh, declined by 6,000 jobs. This is an industry that Uh, The research indicates uh, has been on the decline because of the natural gas prices falling and renewables now falling. Uh, It is uh, only something that, as uh, Dan, I think, suggested in his discussion of the Overton window, uh, really could possibly or even plausibly be addressed by a bailout or, or real serious subsidies regulations uh, and regulatory reform are not going to save the coal industry. We've got facts on the ground, right? You have many coal plants that in recent years have have closed. They're not going to come back with any change in the regulatory environment. So so that rebound sounds like it would be much less possible. Right. And a lot of the utility companies that have been running uh, coal-powered generation plants, in some sense, those Uh, plants themselves had benefited from regulation, benefited from regulation years ago when the Clean Air Act was adopted. uh, There were provisions put in place that allowed facilities that were already in operation to be grandfathered in and to continue to run. And so what we've seen are a number of coal-powered utility plants that have been operating for probably much longer than their expected life plan. 50 years plus. Right. And so we're seeing these old plants now uh, reaching well beyond that. You've got coal uh, losing to natural gas. Uh, so it's not surprising to see these coal plants shutting down. Carrie, let's let's uh, jump to a, another uh, point that I thought was really interesting towards the end of the paper. Uh, and you make a provocative statement here, and I'm going to read a <laughs> passage from the paper that, that both you and Dan wrote. And here's, here it goes. It says, President Obama, perhaps no less than coal industry executives, appears to have been willing at times to accept the war on coal narrative to underscore his administration's commitment to combating climate change. Yet you continue, the Obama administration's signature climate initiatives appear to have added no further momentum to the decline of the coal industry, at least judging from investors' behavior. So given what you've written there, what are we to make of the role and the positive environmental impact of these regulations? Well, I think there's a tendency uh, for uh, political actors to exaggerate uh, a, a 
about regulations in a number of areas uh, uh, and, and in completely different directions. Uh, folks on the political right want to claim that regulations are the death knell of the economy, that they're killing jobs, that they're amounting to a war on coal. Um, folks on the left end of the political spectrum, the uh, progressives want to claim that regulations are the salvation to all that ills the economy and all that ills society. And uh, they can also kind of take it on as a badge of honor. Uh, arguably, President Obama, uh, at, at least at one point, was proud to say we're going to drive the coal industry uh, out of business. Hillary Clinton made a similar statement to that effect, uh, or at least was construed as that, that way, and she, she claims in retrospect that she regrets, as a politician at least, making that claim. But I think the point here is that what we really need is good, sound evidence to drive uh, energy policy, regulatory policy more broadly. Uh, we can't really rely on the strategic claims made by politicians of either side. Uh, I think right now we have an administration that across the board is claiming one of its biggest successes and the values that it's added to the economy has been in deregulation when the fact the volume of deregulation and number of rules on the books has not declined in any appreciable way. Uh, some of the big signature changes that the Trump administration has put in place are still in court. Others are still under development. Uh, you know, a second term of the Trump administration might be a different story, but right now uh, we haven't seen as much, and yet the Trump administration claims that's what it's really accomplished for the American economy and the American taxpayer. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Democrats assail the administration for, for repealing regulations that, you know, that, that, that do good uh, in their account. Um, but the assault isn't as uh, severe as uh, even the, the folks on the left uh, seem to make it. Again, maybe a second term of the Trump administration will be different. But uh, right now, uh, the rules on the books uh, are about what they were before Trump was elected. Uh, and uh, uh, those that are changed are, are in litigation, and we'll have to see where things go uh, further down the road. Uh, enforcement of regulations may be a different story under this administration. It's, uh, it's down, but that's something that can be picked up again uh, in a new administration. And uh, if we have a different uh, president in the White House in 2021, uh, many of these uh, uh, initiatives of the Trump administration uh, will will likely uh, uh, you know be reversed or halted, and and uh, and it will be possible, I think, uh, to see uh, uh, the agenda of uh, the Obama administration carry forward. Carrie and Dan, thanks for talking. Thank you very much, Andy. Thanks for having us. Today's guests have been Kerry Colonisi, Director of the Penn Program on Regulation at Penn Law, and Dan Walters, Assistant Professor of Law at Penn State University. Kerry and Dan's paper on the impact of regulation on the coal industry, titled Wither the Regulatory War on Coal, Scapegoats, Saviors, and Stock Market Reactions, is available now on the Climate Center website. The Climate Center's web address is climateenergy.upenn.edu. Our Twitter feed is at Climate Energy. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.